As many of you know, we've been going through the Psalms together, and each week uh, we're on a reading plan where we read two Psalms a day for five days and two days to catch up. So out of those ten, I pick one to share a word from, and what I'm attempting to do is try to pick a variety of Psalms that have to do with praise, that have to do with uh, dealing with enemies and has to do with instruction of God. And today we're going to look at a psalm that has to do with sin. And this is called a psalm of David. And David was a man, great as he was, but he, like us, was a sinner. So he knew about sin and he wrote about it. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 32, he writes... Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while they may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them, for you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are going to be observing the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. And whenever we do that, we don't have kingdom kids because we want the kids who have been baptized to participate in the Lord's Supper and those who have yet to be baptized for them to have an opportunity to look and to learn, to ask questions and to better understand what the Lord's Supper is all about, which fits actually really well with Psalm 32 because the celebration of the Lord's Supper is the resolution of Psalm 32. And before we dive into what David has here for us today, I want us to spend a moment in prayer together. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you today knowing that your word never passes away. Flowers pass away. We pass away. But your word from the beginning of time, has stood firm in this world. And on it, we have hope for a life to come. But God, as we live and move and have our being in this world today, and how many ever days you give us, we want to understand what your scriptures have to teach us. And today, what it has to say to us about our sin, the hope we find here, the instruction the challenge, and the great love that you have for us. So, Father God, open our eyes, prepare our minds, soften our hearts, 
and steady our hands to receive from you what you wish to give us, that we might know more of you, love more of you, and obey more of your word because we have been together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the topic of sin is uh, never a fun one, but it is an everyday part of our life. We feel it, right? We absolutely feel it. Oftentimes, do we not look in the mirror and say to ourselves, I, I wish I could become the person I know God has called me to be. We feel that ache, right? We feel that shortcoming. We know we're not all God designed us to be yet, and we may struggle with that. In a sense, that is a struggle with sin. Sin can be something specific we do, but it's also rooted in our human nature. And so even when maybe there's nothing we can put our finger on, we feel the pain of sin within us because we know that there is someone God has called us to be. We are longing to be it, and we have not yet arrived yet. Sometimes I tell Christians who are struggling, or those even new in the Christian faith, I'll be honest with you, I thought I would be further ahead than where I am. No lie, I really thought it started off so well, I would be like a super Christian now. But the deeper I get into life, God just reveals more and more of my sin nature to me, more and more that I have to root out by the grace of God so that I can be transformed into the likeness of Christ. It's a lifelong journey. And David was an incredible man. He was a godly man. And he made some horrible decisions. You probably know about him if you've ever read about his life in the Bible. He seduced a woman and, and had, her, had her husband killed. And, and, I mean, it doesn't get much uglier than that. I mean, that is extremely ugly and wicked things to do. And so David knew about sin. He knew that sin in him. And it took him a while to get to the point where he would confess it. And later on in Psalm 51, which eventually you'll read, or if you want to go home and read it now, or go home and read it later, don't read it now, please, but go home and read it later, then you'll see David wrestling with his sin, that particular sin between Bathsheba and her husband. So we know sin. David knows sin. And what we're going to find in this short psalm is the challenge to deal with our sin head on, as well as the hope with which we can face our sin, and the end result, rejoicing in verse 11. First of all, what is sin? One of the interesting things about Psalm 32 is David uses a lot of different words for sin. The first word he uses in verse 1 is transgressions. And transgressions describe our relationship with God. Transgressions is a way to talk about our rebellion against God. It's a way to describe how we can relate to God and say, God, I know what you want from me, but no thank you. It's a relational kind of sin, a rebellion against someone who has loved us. And, and if, if, if a parent has ever gone through that, it has to be heartbreaking to have a child rebel, to go against the relationship. It's not about the rules, it's about the relationship. When a child doesn't want to be in that relationship, it can be heartbreaking, can it? Anyone who rebels against God, it's another way of saying transgressions. So the first word that describes sin is transgressions, and it describes our relationship with God. We have rebelled against him. The second word that we see are sins. 
just using the word sin to talk about sin, it's kind of the generic or, or, or uh, way to talk about sin. It's to describe missing the mark. It was an archery term that meant you got a bullseye, you got a, you got a target, and that is what God wants. And he has told us through the law, through the scriptures, God says, here are my commands. And we aim at it, and our arrow just, like if I tried to shoot a bow and arrow today, this is what would happen. It would just go, whoop, and just land in the grass. I'm not hitting that target. I'm not good with a bow. I don't have to use them very often, thankfully. That's not going to be good home defense for me. But that's what would happen if I shot a bow. If I'm aiming at a target, it's gonna, it is not going to hit the mark. So when David uses the word sin here, he's describing not just the relationship we have with God when he talks about rebellion or transgression. Here he's talking about our relationship with God's law. That there is a mark we are aiming at, and when we don't hit it, we miss the mark, and therefore we sin. The third word that David uses to describe our sin is the word iniquity. That one you're going to find a little bit further down in the middle of verse 5, where David is saying that he did not cover up his iniquity. The third word, iniquity, describes the effect that sin has on our lives. That we become, we become crooked or bent or perverse. That the more we sin, the more we allow ourselves to engage in sin, the, the less concerned we are with following God's law. That iniquity in us, begins to shape and form us, make us crooked or bent. Our relationship with God is affected by sin. Our relationship to his law is affected by our sin. And our relationship to ourself is affected by our sin. So what is the hope? Well, listen to what David says at the end of verse 2. He talks about, Blessed is the one who the sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I underline that word deceit in my Bible because that's an important word in all of this. Because we've talked about what sin is, and most of you already knew a lot of that. But it's when we come to grips not with the idea of sin, but it's when we come to grips with our sin. That's the turning point. When we, are real, when we are ready and able to confess, I am a sinner. Not, yeah, there are sinners out there. Yeah, there are sinners in the Bible. Yeah, I used to be a sinner. It's when you say, and you're able to say without deceit, without fooling yourself or anyone else, I have sinned. Not even to be generic about it, but to say, this is my sin. Now, I'll be honest with you. When my sin comes to me, my first reaction often is just to ignore it. Not even there. If it's not there, I don't have to deal with it, right? You just pretend like it's not there, and pretty soon, like that hole in the wall at your house, you just stop noticing it, right? Just ignore it. That can be our first reaction to sin. Ignoring it can work, but it may cause enough pain in our life, enough problems in our life, enough people may be pointing out that sin in our life that we can no longer ignore it. What's our second option? Our second option, of course, is to blame. Well, it's not my fault. I didn't put the hole in the wall. Yeah, I did this, but they did that, right? We put the blame on someone else, something else, the circumstances. If I weren't in these circumstances, I wouldn't have done this. We blame other people. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done what I did. When we come head to head with our sin, we can try to ignore it when that no longer works. 
we can turn to blaming other people or circumstances. And when that doesn't work, I'm just pulling out my own toolbox here. Y'all, y'all, y'all may have some other methods. I'm just telling you what I do in my, in, on my not-so-good days. I minimize. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't tell that little white lie. Yeah, I know I shouldn't look at pornography. Yeah, I know it's not right to do this or that. But, I mean, in reality, it's not that big. I mean, there are people out there doing horrible things. What are we doing? We are deceiving ourselves. We are attempting to deceive others. But the only hope we have is to realize we cannot, nor should we want to, deceive God. We can try to hide our sin, blame other people on our sin, or minimize our sin, but God sees it. He sees it all. So this is crucial. Once we get an understanding of sin, we have to confess that we are sinners. No deceit, no blaming, ignoring, or minimizing. See, when we do that, when we realize that, then we've got some hope. But if we don't, what happens? Now, this is part of David's story. After he did these horrible things, took a man's wife, and took a man's life. This is the most tremendously evil things you could possibly think of. He did that. And he didn't own it. Not right away. He tried to ignore it. What were the results? Can I just tell you, this is one of the things I love about God's word. It's so honest. And David supposedly is the one that wrote this. It may have been somebody else who wrote it for him, but surely they knew what he was going through, so it would be accurate to what David was happening in David's life. But the scriptures are very honest. There is no pure hero in the scriptures except for Jesus. He's the only one. Every other human person that even does good is a flawed human person. And in David's life, when he sinned, he did not bring it to the Lord. He did not confess it. He did not try to make it right. He tried to run from it. But then he's honest enough to tell us the results of that. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And we know something a little bit about the heat of summer. Today is going to be a triple heat, triple digit day. It's going to be really hot. And if you walk out of your house and it's that hot, it, just, it does. It lands on you, doesn't it? It just hits you. You can feel it when you walk out that door. It's like, oh, and you just feel the weight of the heat, right? David's saying, I feel the weight of your hand on me. I'm not able to escape this sin. He was feeling the guilt that he rightfully should be feeling. He wasn't feeling the intense weight of God's hand on him because God wanted something for him. And this is so important, y'all. God does not convict you of sin to beat you up or to keep you down. He lets you feel the weight of conviction because he wants to lift you up and move you forward. So David is very honest. He says, this is what it's like when I didn't confess my sin to God. It was terrible. It felt like my bones inside of me were wasting away. Felt like summer, the heat of summer was just on me 24-7. These are the results for David and for us. 
But then David does something that we must do. He says, but then. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. He turns to God and recognizes that I have sinned against God. He had certainly sinned against other people. But anytime we sin, it is first and foremost a sin against God. It can also be a sin against other people. But it is always first and foremost a sin against God. And he understood that. And so he turned to the one that he grieved the most, God himself, and confesses his sin. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would guess maybe some of you have done this before and it didn't go so well. You sinned against someone, you went and talked to them, and they said, well, thanks for that, but you're only getting the tip of the iceberg here. You, you, just hit the, you just hit a few things on the list. Let me show you all the other ways you've disappointed me. Or they have come to, you've gone to them and you've asked for forgiveness. They said, well, thanks for, that, or thanks for that confession, but I do not forgive you. You may have been in that place where you've sinned against someone and you go to them and you try to make things right and it just seems to fall apart. I wonder if sometimes that colors the way we see God. That when we come to God, he knows more than I'm even going to tell him. Surely he's going to reject me. Surely he wouldn't have anything to do with me. He doesn't, he doesn't want to deal with me. I, so what's the point? Why even go? Why even confess my sin? But I hope if that's how you feel sometimes, you will see the truth of Scripture. Look at what happened to David. He uses words like forgiveness, sins are covered, not counted against him. He says his iniquity is covered up. He says that he's forgiven of the guilt of his sin. There's some specific words that David uses here that I think can help us understand what God does when he forgives a sinner who confesses. Because it's not a small thing that God would forgive our sin. And he doesn't do it lightly. We also know the scenario when someone says they forgive us, but they really don't. And then they bring it up later, right? That happens to all of us, right? Or we've done that to somebody, right? But what's it like with God when he forgives? These words tell us. When David says that he's forgiven for his sin, what that means is that sin, that word literally means to be lifted off of. I feel the weight of sin, and when God forgives me, he lifts that weight. I'm carrying a backpack full of rocks that are my sin, and God comes along and says, let me take that for you. He lifts our sin off of us, and we are forgiven. Not only that, but he covers it over. Remember, David would say earlier, he talked about covering up his own iniquity. That he was not covering it up. Well, if your sin is laid bare, it's not covered up and everybody can see it. 
what are you going to do? The hope of David and what he found is that the Lord comes along and covers it up. What does that mean? It means it's not seen by God anymore. He's not staring at your sin anymore. He's not looking at you through the lens of your sin, but through the lens of forgiveness. Our sins can be covered to be seen no more by God. David also talks about how sin is not counted against him. And this would have been like a, like a financial uh, terminology here. Not counted against. You owe a debt that you cannot pay. Does it sound familiar? And now that debt has been forgiven. What you rightfully owe to God because of our sin against God, God wipes out. So David says, when I went to God, I was forgiven. My sins were covered and they were no longer counted against me. This was, this was his experience with God when he went to God and confessed his sin. But let me tell you, it's our experience too. When we come to God, confess our sin, we can experience the same kind of forgiveness that David did. But David gives us a warning. Right in the middle of this psalm, he warns us. He says, don't delay. Verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising mighty waters will not reach them. He's recognizing that there will come a time where forgiveness is no longer offered to us. It may be because outside of the forgiveness of God, we pass from this life to the next. Or it may be that our hearts become so hardened by our sin that we stop looking to God for forgiveness in the first place. But he says that those who come to him, the rising waters are not going to drown you. But those who do not, then we are left to deal with our sins on our own. So he says to us, I think, today to pray to God. While he can be found, confess our sin, receive forgiveness. Not tomorrow, don't put it off. Not till you get a few things in your life cleaned up. Today, now, even now, you can tune out everything I'm saying through the rest of this sermon and just talk to God about your sin and embrace the forgiveness he has for you. That'd be far better than hearing anything else I have to say because you're dealing with God directly. I'd say do it. And I think David would say the same thing. Don't delay. Then he starts in verse 7. He says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with the songs of deliverance. And then it's unclear in verse 8. Is he talking? Is God talking? I think it's God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. You've quit trying to hide your sin. You've confessed it to God. Now what? God says, I'm looking out for you. It's a very different thing than I've got my eyes on you, which I have to communicate to my kids sometimes, you know, especially now that mama's taking care of some problems. I got my eyes on you. You three right here, right? Like that's different. What God is saying is I have my loving eye on you. I am looking out for you. You don't just leave that forgiveness and now it's all up to you. No, no, no. 
God is with you. He's walking with you. He is there to deliver you. He is your and my hiding place. He said, so knowing all that, don't be like a horse or a mule. I remember one time trying to chase down a mule with my grandfather, and it was chaos, y'all. Just exactly like you would expect. That thing did not want to go anywhere we wanted it to go. So you got to rope it, you got to put the bit and bridle in it, and then you, then you can control that animal to some degree, right? And so David's saying, don't be that way. Don't, don't, don't appro approach God. Don't be like an animal that runs from God and is stubborn and refuses to, to come to the Lord. That's, that's, what, that's what a mule would do. Don't be that way. When you know who God is, when you know the forgiveness he offers, that should beckon you to just come to him, unlike one of these animals that will do their own thing unless they are coerced. Don't be that way. Just freely and willingly come to me. And then he says, many are the foes of the wicked in verse 10, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Now, I got to tell you, if I were you, I'd hear all that and say, well, that sounds good. But how do I know that God loves me like that? How do I know that God can forgive me like that? I mean, that sounds nice that that's who God is, but how do I know that's who God is? And we know from the New Testament, from what John says to us in his epistle, we know that this is how we know what love is. That God would give his son for sinners like us. How do we know God forgives like this? Because he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins for us so that we could be forgiven like this. How do we know our sins are covered? Because we're covered by the blood of Jesus that takes away our sin. That's how we know. How do we know we're forgiven? Because Jesus has secured our forgiveness for us. We don't have to doubt who God is, or what his love looks like. It looks like Jesus. That's how we know we can come to him without brit or bridle, bit or bridle. That's how we know we can come to him freely. That's how we know we can come to him knowing that we can be forgiven. That's how we can come to him knowing that he is, he is, our, he is our protector. He's our deliverer. He's the one we can hide our life in. He's the one that's going to walk with us from now on. We know that. Because that's what we see God doing through his son, Jesus, who was God himself. So when we know that, the results of that are rejoicing. What could you do but rejoice when you know that? When you have been honest with yourself and you say, yep, that's me. I've got sin. I have missed the mark. I've rejected what God wants. I have rebelled against God. I've rejected a relationship with God. I have been affected by that. My iniquity is on me and it is shaped and formed me. And I don't like who I am. When there's no deceit in you and you're honest about that. And then you take that instead of ignoring it or blaming it on other people. Or minimizing instead of all that. You come to God and you see the forgiveness that he has secured for you. And an incredibly high price of giving his son Jesus. The result is praise. This is the kind of God we have. He's not an angry being in the sky with a 
microscope, just looking down on us, scrutinizing all of our decisions. He's not looking down, looking for opportunities to judge us or punish us. He's looking for us to come to him, that we might be forgiven. And when we know we have a God like that, of course we rejoice and we are glad because we have been made righteous. We sing because we are upright in heart, not on our own account, but because we know what God has secured for us in Christ. And so, church, those who are exploring what it means to walk with God, those who are part of our family and those who are visiting and guests with us today, that's what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper and we take that cup and we take that bread, we are remembering the blood that Jesus poured out that we might be forgiven, his body that was broken that we might be forgiven. That's what's happening in this Lord's Supper. It's no small thing. It's an incredibly powerful symbol, a beautiful reminder that this is who our God is. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite um, our deacons to come forward, those who are in the service today. They're going to sit, sit down front. We, we've been doing things a little bit different in this COVID era because we were not wanting to pass plate from hand to hand. But you should find... I need you to bring me one, Dennis, so I can show him. But you should find a little cup in your pew. Looks like this. And the top is going to have a little cellophane wrapper. And if you will go ahead and grab that cup and open that cellophane wrapper now, it's going to make a little bit of a noise. So we're going to go ahead and do it now and just prepare that first part of our Lord's Supper together. Pull back that cellophane. So that you can access the bread or what is a wafer. Yes, it does taste like styrofoam. Thank you, Jackson. Yeah, it's, it's not pleasant, but that's okay. It's about the symbolism, right? It's about the symbolism. And before we go much further into it, I want to point out what the Apostle Paul said to the church. He said, before you take this Lord's Supper, in chapter 11, verse 28 of 1 Corinthians... Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examination begins with the first question, am I in Christ? Am I a Christian? If you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not, deal with being a Christian first. God is calling you into a relationship with him through Jesus. Will you respond to that call? And if you're ready to make that decision, you're ready to make that step, I want to talk to you about that. I want to pray for you about that. You can indicate that on your connection card. You can come visit with me after the service. But that's the first question, are we in Christ? The second one is, is, is there sin in our life we haven't repented of? That's what we just talked about. You can access the ear of God now. You don't have to wait. You can literally talk to God right now, and as you are confessing sin to him, he is hearing you. He is forgiving you. As you are trusting him to do it. So those are a couple things to think about. Ways to examine ourselves that Paul encourages us to do as we approach the Lord's Supper. I want to call Dennis uh, Donovan, one of our deacons, actually our chair deacon for another month before we have new deacon chairs. 
added. And Dennis is going to come and read about the body of Christ for us. Dennis. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Amen. Thank you, Dennis. I invite you to take the bread. Again, the Apostle Paul said, For I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. It is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for sending your Son to be broken for us. May the bread of life nourish us until he comes again. Amen. Now another one of our deacons, Brother Tommy, is going to come and share another word for you on the blood of Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. Now, if you would remove that next layer, it allows us to get to the cup. Again, we read from the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus to shed his blood for us. May his sacrifice remind us of the seriousness of our sin and the greatness of your grace. And may it continue to remind us until Christ comes again. Amen. We read in scripture that after taking the bread and drinking from the cup, that Jesus and his disciples sang a song before they departed. And so Jay's going to come now and lead us in a song. Would you stand with us? <laughs> 